Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Super stoked to have one of the most talented people I know um, in my lifetime. I mean, uh, this dude inspired many of the paths of uh, creativity that I followed in my life. He continues to inspire me with new and exciting things that he's doing. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a creator. He's an awesome artist. Um, he's got this book that came out last holiday season. We did a podcast on it last I think it was like uh, this time last year, too, as well. And uh, we're going to talk about it as well, because, you know, the holiday season's coming. Last year, we had the pandemic. He's been doing a lot of other cool stuff, um, featured in a brand new magazine, talking about things he likes. Super stoked to have him back here on the show. We are recording Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Because, as I mentioned previously on last week's episode, can't hang no more in the evening. So my mind is fresh. I'm full of alpha brain and I'm ready to go. With that being said, please welcome to the show, back to the show, Mr. Mark Voger. How are you? Thank you, thank you, Mr. Bob Cahill. Uh, you know, I skipped church to do this. Oh, so you know. okay. That's a that 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 kind of be that it could be a good shirt. I skipped church to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, first off, this is a new room that you're. Um, we only do audio here, so for the people who are listening, uh, I'm in a a room with Mark Voger that seems to be full of pop culture relics. Right, we got a lot of stuff up there on the wall. I see Betty Boop. I see. Uh, all, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here's my well. We're not. It's audio only, so I won't. But uh, yeah, my the pop culture collection of a lifetime is is right next to me here. Yeah. When you have a pop culture collect collection of a lifetime, right? I mean, like, there's always going to be um, this, like, uh, I guess, relic or like this, like, uh, thing that you want to get back. Is there one specific pop culture relic that you think of from your youth that stands above the rest? Yeah, and I, I still have it. It's um, it's a um. It's a little teddy bear that was manufactured by Knickerbocker in 1959 of uh, Boo Boo Bear. I still have the original. He's he, uh, uh, my dog Bandit chewed his ear off, one of his ears off. Oh man! Bob, if honestly, if if somebody held a gun to my head and said you can keep one thing, um, I think it would be this guy, like over like my car or my house. I because you can always get another car or a house or something, but once this guy is gone, you know. But anyway, I've had him all my life. So like what I'm looking at, too, if you hold them up one more time so I could just describe to the audience from sync. So something about the like this is what, like 19. Uh, like dating this, this, uh, this piece of uh, pop culture artifact. What year did that come out, you think? Uh, 1959. I, I was uh, I, I went from zero to one in May of 59. So 1959. Also, I'm looking at this, this, you know, kids toy. The colors are so much different than anything today right i mean like the hues of uh green and purple like the impressions upon it i mean like there's something about those old school toys that have a more i don't even know how to describe it like it's like the plastic hadn't hit the toys yet you know they filled more practical back then would you argue that the plastic mattel i guess that was like what 70s and 80s when they they figured out cartoons and toys went together right yeah and and uh, you know bob everything i say now it sounds like an old man ra railing against the world but the, the, the main difference, I think, is just like, uh, the, I'll just, just describe it briefly for your listeners, is that his face is really friendly. And mm -hmm. uh, in fact, his eyes are looking sideways, which was, which was a thing in the 50s, like Humpty Dumpty and all these toys. Their eyes look sideways, almost like the expressions like, I'm your friend. And yeah, when, when things, got, things got so mean, like, you know, like, you know, Batman always is scowling and since the 80s, really. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the main difference is, I think, is like kind of a friendliness, you know, but, but uh, you know, 
I'm an old man, so. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you obviously, you know how much I love Batman. And like, you know, I think about Batman probably daily. Um, something to be said about that, too, because the, uh, you know, like the uh, the scold or like him, like looking mean didn't really happen until uh, Neil Adams. Right. And like in the 70s, because Batman before was like kind of like fun. Right. I mean, like he was always smiling with Robin on the cover. I mean, he was tortured, but he looked like he was having a good time. Yeah, I guess that's for you. But what? Uh... The Batman editor in the in the 60s when the Adam West TV show was on was was um, Julie Schwartz and he was directed by DC to make the book seem more like the TV show and, and it really did not translate you know and so it was really goofy and then when uh, when the Adam West series crashed and burned um, people thought that Batman's reputation was now irreparable but then as you say uh, uh, they Julie brought in uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill as a writer. And so those guys were, were now directed to bring Batman back to his roots, which was like the, uh, the mysterious, uh, you know, Avenger of the night uh, with detective skills and the comedy went away. And so from, the, from like the late 60s on, he's really been more of a serious character. And they also gave him a, a plethora of chest hair in the 70s. He was always with his shirt off and like I was like, man, he's hairy. And like that was like, I guess the Sean Connery vibe like back in the day. It was like sexy for men to be covered in hair that show that they're a man, I guess. Like, yeah, Sean Connery <laughs> and some of those scenes needed to be sheared like a sheep. <laughs> yeah, you know, I one question like as we were talking about, you know, uh, Adam West and, um, you know, the, the wonderful Batman series. What was it like? Because like I can only imagine because like I lived in the um, uh, Channel 57 reruns of it. What was it like when they announced, or I don't even know, did you know that the Batman series was canceled? Like, did you know that they were coming to an end? No, no, I didn't. It, 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 you know, there was much less of a grapevine back then. Yeah, right. Uh, so you didn't know, right? They didn't announce it on TV. By the way, kids, Batman won't be back next week. You, you honestly, Bob, you found that, that all these things out um, the following September when the newspapers would put out their uh, fall preview of because uh, because the TV series ended in, in um, late spring and they began in the fall and so summer was reruns so that's when you found out that like oh shit there's no more Gilligan's Island pardon my French I'm sorry that's okay you can curse on the show it's all right um, you know Gilligan's Island too I mean like uh, so it's interesting you bring up that too because like I have another area of uh, pop culture introspection with them right so like the series ends and correct me if I'm wrong but doesn't ABC ABC, right? Was it CBS or ABC? I can't recall, but they brought them back, right? For uh, two TV movies, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. In the 70s, um, I think it was called Return to Gilligan's Island. and uh, But they get rescued, right? And then they decide yeah, to go back. Island, right. Everybody yeah. was ginger. Um, Tina Louise did not participate. Yes. Wait, so. didn't they recast her too? Yeah, they recast her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when I was working at oldies.com, that one of those films and i think it's the one where they actually they get off they get rescued they come back to like santa monica everyone's cheering for them you know you've been gone for you know how, how long um that film went uh into the public domain they never renewed the copyright for it and like you know i it's kind of strange to me that like you know gilligan's island i mean like with everything being remade i mean from scooby-doo to you know uh everything gilligan's island's never been touched you know they could possibly do an interesting spin on it in 2021 but uh you're I right Unlike you know monsters and the adams family they never remade gilgan's island you know for a long time they kept bringing the original cast back like 
the Gilgan, the, the Gilgan's Island, Harlem Globetrotters on yep. Gilgan Island and stuff like that. But no, they never, they never did recast it. They did a reality show called you know, Gilgan's Island Reality Show, which I watched faithfully. Really? I don't watch reality shows, but it was like two Gilgans, two professors, two rich people, uh, couples, you know, it was really weird. Oh, you know, oh, so they tried to like mimic the cast with the, okay. So there was no cast member from Gilligan's Island hosting it? Bob Denver no, wasn't on? Like, like on the last episode, they were talking about some big surprise. And I thought that they were going to like airlift Bob Denver down, you know, but yeah. no, nobody ever showed up and they were still, there were still three or four of them alive. Yeah. Such an interesting uh, story. I mean, Gilligan's Island, uh, it's so, as a kid, like it was like, for me, it was Gilligan's Island, Batman, head of the class. Just these shows that like, you know, it's like also too, it's like we're talking about a different time and place where, you know, syndicated television was the end all for um, viewer consumption. Now everything's streamed and stuff like that. Like living with a TV guide, you know, and like, as you said, like, I remember uh, finding out about shows or like, I can recall when they announced the, in the TV guide, I found out that the Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno were coming back to television and the return of the Incredible Hawk, a two hour movie on CBS. And I remember just being like, is this real? <laughs> you know, like looking at it, like it's gotta be real. It's in the TV guide. Do you remember when they did that? No, Bob, that was, that was after my time. Like uh, even when the original uh, Incredible Hulk was airing, I really missed, I was in college, you know, mm. I was, I was um, you know, I, I like to say I was like carousing, but really I was working on the college magazine, you know, like, like late mm. into the night, you know, so I really wasn't watching, I really wasn't paying much attention. So, uh, so when they got back together, I mean, I, to me, Bill Bixby was um, my favorite Martian. He was, Great show. Uh, yeah, he, he was the, the Tim O'Hara, the guy who found Uncle Martin, the Martian. So I was like, oh, look, uh, my favorite Martian is, uh, is, is uh, Dr. Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, you know, so. Was it there, um, like afterwards, the Incredible Hulk, I believe that Bill Bixby did a show called uh, Magicians or Wizards or something like that that was short-lived. I heard yeah. that's really good, and I've heard it on a couple of podcasts, and I'm like, I should check that out, but I don't know where I could uh, probably buy the DVD. But yeah, I did love Bill Bixby. Um, you, oh, he you just he, he was good. In, he was good. Father. He was in uh, Good Night. Good Night. Uh, he was in some jur- TV journalism show. Can't mm-hmm. remember the title of it, but uh, and he died young. You know, it's a great loss. Yeah, great loss. Um, you were mentioning a moment ago that you were working on uh, college in college. You were in a magazine, and now. You know, um, years later, you're starting a new job uh, at a magazine. And uh, you just mentioned this to me the other day. It's something that you're excited about. What can you tell me about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's it's not it's it's a, uh, I'm a it's a magazine. <laughs> I'm stumbling on that one. It's a magazine called Retro Fan. And it's a real print magazine. I mean, they do a PDF edition, but it's a real actual print magazine. It's uh, sold in Barnes and Noble, I'm told. It, I don't even know if there are any Barnes and Nobles it, it left in the world, but anyway, it's um, it's like uh, the, the the tagline is the crazy cool culture we grew up with, you know, and and uh, it's edited by a guy named Michael Yuri, who's uh, uh, a uh, you know he he also edits a magazine called Back Issue, and it's an Eisner Award winning magazine, and designed by a very talented gentleman named Scott Savadra, and um, just has a it has columnists that contribute every issue, and we pitch ideas to the editor. And so really it's great because like in newspapers for 40 years uh, in work, doing entertainment reporting, if an editor came up to me and said, I have an idea for an assignment for you, that wasn't usually as good a fit as if I, if I went to them and said, I have an idea 
Mm. I'm pitching an idea, would you be interested in this? If it comes from the writer, it, it's a little more organic, you know? So we pitched him ideas. So um, um, my, I debut in issue number 20, which comes out in April, but I've already turned in four columns. So one of them, the first four are like the last years of Mo Howard of the Three Stooges. Really oh, wow. Dive into his, his last decade where he, he was Mo until the day he died. And um, he, he had his hair cut in the Mo haircut and we could comb it out whenever, whenever like a moment's notice, like Superman changing in the phone booth. You know? Wow. And then a, a, a deep dive into like how Julie Newmar actually revived the Catwoman. The Catwoman was actually like a blacklisted character mm -hmm. uh, thanks to Frederick Wortham. And she hadn't been seen since, since the mid fifties. And then after Julie uh, in 66 on Batman, suddenly DC's like, oh yeah, we're bringing her back. And uh, so their careers kind of coincided. Uh, and then uh, what I do, I did um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, deep dive into that, and one other one. Oh, the beach party movies with Frankie and Annette, and beach culture in general. So it's just fun. It's just a fun. It's a fun magazine. It's a fun thing to do. Four thousand words, lots of art, you know. So so yeah, all that I, I'm into. So Mo Howard, though. So like the hair. So did he always did he have his hair combed to the side, and then he would just push it forward real quick, like when people like wanted to be. Yeah, and I, and I saw it in person happen once. Uh, no way. If, if your listeners want to um, see this, it's really easy. Just go on the YouTube and um, you know type in Mike Douglas show Mo Howard. Mm -hmm. He was on the show about three times, but the first time he was, you know, he's he's wearing like the old man uh, uniform in those days, which is like a white turtleneck and a plaid jacket. You know, this is '73. You know, mm -hmm. and and he's his hair is normal. It's pure white. He's ancient, and then he gets on. And he starts talking and the next thing you know somebody goads him and he pulls out a comb and he, he he combs his hair forward and it's a perfect mo bowl cut you know and i saw him when i was about i guess a sophomore in high school yeah. i don't know i might have been in ninth grade but um he did an appearance at a movie theater in south jersey like a solo little appearance mm -hmm. and it's like i was just so lucky to have seen that you know because there are not many opportunities and he whipped out the comb and combed it into a mo and you know we all like you know clap clapped our asses off the, the three stooges you know there's so many things about them that are like like i remember like uh you know it, it's hard to to think about but i mean like they were super popular and also they were committed towards physical comedy and physical comedy you know and they were older men you know i mean like they weren't young stuntmen you know like 25 years old they were you know up there and i i had read that like sometimes like they really got into it to the point where you know mo had back problems and stuff right like i mean, I mean you know like the stooges actually had physical ailments i know there was some alcoholism later and stuff like that but like i've always been interested in the story behind them you know because it's like they made you laugh but i mean i imagine you know as we know like a comedian sometimes you know it, we they want to, to have people laugh but they're really suffering on the inside so what did you find out about them like what what types of, what was he like? Well, uh, you know, Mo was the taskmaster. He was the leader, just like he was in, in the movies. Um, mm -hmm. uh, two of his brothers were, were, the were the third stooges at various points. Uh, Shemp was his older brother. Curly was his younger brother. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shemp left, Curly came in, Shemp went solo. And, uh, you know, Curly, the, the Curly shorts, uh, the, <laughs> the Curly short films, I should, I should say. Mm -hmm. are um you know everybody's favorite he's the funniest to me he's the funniest guy in the movies funnier than groucho or anybody um but he but it is a tragic story because he he was a he was really into the hollywood nightlife 
got married a lot. Uh, it bought, picked up stray dogs in every town the studios went to. He just loved dogs. He wow. had a stroke on the set of uh, of, uh, of a short, one of his shorts in 1946, and he died. Uh, he never recovered really, and died before he turned 50. Shemp came back, and then Shemp died a few years later uh, in a very Shemp way. He was on his way back from the races with friends in a taxi cab in L.A. He lit a cigar and then he and then just dropped dead in the in the uh, in the cab. So, wow, it is a lot of sad stuff back there. Larry had a debilitating stroke when yeah. they were planning yet another comeback. So you know Mo, um, you know, but Mo just kept pushing. He just kept pushing till the end. Shemp, uh, you know, I, there's something about Shemp's hair that I think I think about Shemp getting smacked a lot and when his hair like it would just fly up, you know, and like. It's so weird, too, because it's like, you know, as a child, like, you know, I think I was like five, six, my son's age, like watching the Three Stooges. And like you just accepted that sometimes Curly wouldn't show up and then to be this other guy, Shemp. You know what I mean? Like that wouldn't happen so much. Uh, you know, I guess it does. You get recast and stuff. But like, was there ever a was there ever um, like a TV appearance or something where all four of them were together? The four Stooges. Yes, there was one time. Uh, really? When. um when Curly was was on the mend after his stroke, he did a he did a cameo mm -hmm. in uh, and I, I think it was called Hold That Lion, was this was the uh, was the short, forty seven maybe, and um, what happened is it was a Shemp it was a a, a Shemp Three Stooges, and uh, they just did a quick scene where there's a guy snoring in a in a train car, and he has a derby over his face. And then the three studios are running by, then they see him and they stop. And then they pull, they pull off the derby and it's curly. Oh, and he wow. has a full head of hair because he hasn't been shaving his head. And I think, he, I think he has a clothespin on his nose. They pull it off. He snores really loud. They put it back on and then they continue. So it, it, there is one moment where the, all three Howard brothers, Mo, uh, Samuel, Shemp, and uh, 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 Jerry, Curly, were, were on screen at the same moment. Wow. Couldn't that be? I could see that somewhere. That's on YouTube, you think? Oh, it must. It must. Uh, I got to check that out. I mean, like it was just uh, maybe two, three years ago that I had discovered the fact that. Uh, I mean, I guess YouTube kind of reports it that uh, you know tying into your article on the creature from the Black Lagoon that at one time on a live television show, Abbott and Costello uh, met the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, it's like this, like TV show setting. You recall that? Yeah, sure. That was um, uh, that was a program in the 50s called the Colgate Comedy Hour. And um, a lot of that humor doesn't hold up. It was live, the, the, the filming wasn't good. It looked like, it looks like kinescopes, you know? Yeah. Um, Abbott Costello did it a, a number of times. Lewis and Martin did it a number of times. They're always worth watching because you can find little gems in them. And, um, you know, Abbott Costello, uh, well, actually didn't always.com release uh, a, a, a version of that? They did, uh, they did, yeah. Abbott Costello meet the creature which is like a dream movie that never happened. But, but yes, it happened on the Colgate comedy hour. Yeah. So, and they try, they yeah. try to make it into like a, like it looked like a two hour feature, but it wasn't like that at all. But it's good to preserve it. Yeah. It's good. To, it's good oh to yeah. Do it. You know, I, I had read uh, at some point that um, Abbott and Costello's um, relationship got so um, conflicted at one time, they wanted to be called Costello and Abbott. <laughs> like that. Is that true that there was resentment between the two? Well, I never heard the 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 uh, Costello and Abbott thing, but um, but you know they they were really tired of each other by the end. Mm. 
you know, the funny thing is when you look at their very last movie, which was called Dance With Me, Henry, mm-hmm. um, they're not even really together in the movie. They, uh, in most Abbott Costello movies, they are pals and Abbott is, you know, slapping uh, Costello around. In this movie, they're like separate characters that, can, that are thrown in together. And, um, and uh, so anyway, they, uh, they, they didn't end on great terms, um, but, uh, you know, uh, that happened a lot in, in, uh, in, those, in a lot of those comedy teams. Lewis and Martin just, you know, couldn't stand each other and actually never really spoke until um, Sinatra kind of engineered a little uh, surprise uh, union on the, uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon from us to a dystrophy, you know. So and they 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 are great together in in those in those moments. So like Laurel and Hardy were like the three guys. It's rather the two guys that loved each other till the end. You know. Oh really? I didn't know that. So you know, it's interesting too because the comedy teams and like it's just. I mean, I guess like is there a modern day comedy team? Like I I don't think so. I mean, you know, Kevin Smith came, uh, revived it with uh, Jay and Silent Bob. You're right on that. Yeah. I always thought that. Oh, I told you this before, Bob. Like, when you, because <laughs> your brother Sam and me, mm-hmm. like, uh, our favorite movie is Happened to Tell Me Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't it be funny if they did Jay and Silent Bob Meet Frankenstein, a remake of Happened to Tell Me Frankenstein, where they're like stoner uh, uh, delivery <laughs> men in, in Florida? And But, you know, I'm, I'm just. Yeah, I could write that right now. I could see Snoochie Boochies going in to pick up like, you know, a pound of weed and then coming across Frankenstein's monster in a box or something. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I guess that is a comedy team, but it's 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 you don't think of it in the same terms, I guess. I don't know. But um, I, I read that um, I think he just filmed Clerks 3 up in New Jersey. Right. They just wrapped the trilogy series up. I heard That's on a podcast yeah. about for a long time, you know. So, uh, you know, that's it, interesting, you know. I mean, my, uh, my, uh, just as a, as a side, my favorite Kevin Smith movie is, I highly recommend it, it came and went. It's, it's a freaking masterpiece. It, it's Red State. Um, it's a yep. horror movie he made. Um, and uh, it's just out of this world, out of this world. I agree 100%. Uh, when you watch this film, I mean, okay, I remember when it came out, I was like, this is the same Kevin Smith because it is his finest work. It doesn't even like uh, it's it's I read I had read that he wrote that script as an exercise. And uh, like, you know, when you write a screenplay, like, you know, there's an inciting incident. There's the midpoint. There's all these parts of the script that you have to hit the dark night of the soul. Page 75, blah, blah, blah. As an exercise this time, he wanted to write this story where each and every scene led to another scene where it just doubled in, um, you know, anticipation and anxiety. It's a great movie. I mean, it deals with, uh, I guess, uh, crazy religious groups, right? Yeah. Hey, Bob, uh, I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember the actor who played the preacher. Oh, Michael Parks. Oh, he's great. Michael Parks. It's a, he should have been nominated for an Oscar. He's really good in it. Yeah. And he was a good, may he rest in peace too. I was sad. Oh, when he passed a away. great actor. He, it, um, just the scene, well, we don't want to like do a deep dive or a digression on Red State, but this, his opening scene as the preacher where he does a sermon that lasts for seven minutes and he controls that yep. the camera for seven minutes. It's a tour de force. I honestly would like Kevin Smith to get back into the horror genre because that was, I mean, like, yes, his comedy films, it's a very, you, you know what you're getting. It's a very, you know, uh, you know what's happening. But Red State, it surprised me. And look, this is my show. We could do whatever we want. I want to do a deep dive on it. 
uh, in Red State, spoilers if you haven't seen it, but regardless, who cares? Um, do you know the original ending like that he wanted to do for Red State? No, I love the ending as it is. But what Okay, so spo- spoilers out there. Turn off and fast forward uh, two and a half minutes. So Definitely. in Red State, it ends with this like massive like a uh, horn like this like the, uh, it's the call of uh the angel of gabriel i believe like the apocalypse coming the sign- the sign the signification that the uh, i guess uh the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming right um turns out in the film that it's just this hippie commune uh, a couple miles away and they got this like conch type thing but in his original script it is the apocalypse and in the last scene the bad guy is taken out by the sword of an angel who's come down from heaven and like he looks up and he sees the apocalypse and everybody coming down and then it just hits the credits right away and that would have been awesome but like kevin on a podcast said it would have been like 20 million dollars extra but damn that would have been a good ending i gotta say i have no complaints with the way the way it turned out it's fantastic because the whole movie is john goodman's character and michael parks's character getting closer and closer and at that moment with the horn finally they're right neck right in in each other's face and Michael Parks is saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and he believes it, too. Michael Parks' character believes when he hears the horn that he's uh, justified. Yeah. So good. So good. But, yeah, I wish Kevin would get back into that, man. That was that was like almost like 10, 15 years ago. Right. I mean, that's I don't even consider it a horror movie. I, I really consider it like real life. You know, I I um I will watch Clerks 3. Um, I used to listen to the Fat Man on Batman podcast religiously, but since they changed the name and they don't really talk about Batman no more, they talk about uh, everything else that's going on with like pop culture and stuff like that. And I mean, it, it is, um, God, there's like so much content now, you know, there's so much stuff. Uh, it's like a new Hawkeye series coming. For me, it's very exciting because it's like, uh, I'm like repeating the, the, the pattern of the past by now t- teaching my son about the Marvel universe you know there's the marvel cinematic universe but you know i know about the marvel universe but like it's interesting to have like these like deep dive conversations like he'll ask me like uh so why can't hulk pick up the hammer you know and like we can go on this like discourse for like you know 10 minutes but why doesn't robin wear pants yeah why well i mean i guess we kind of know why he didn't right i mean that was the look back in the day right (laughs) yeah that frederick wortham had a field day with that you know like a kid running around in green underwear but then i guess the jason todd also he had the same look but then it wasn't until tim drake that they put pants on robin and that was into the 90s so he was like cold for like how many years yeah and of course you're getting into an area that i don't that that was after my time but even in 66 67 there there was robin appeared as like a nightwing harbinger he was like a grown-up robin he had like a batman kind of costume happened in justice league Mm -hmm. in uh, uh, of america in like uh, about 67 i'd say you know i mean the one thing that like i can't say I, like people ask me all the time they're like you know you're a big batman f- fan bob how do you feel about the, the films and there's a new one coming i'll see it but you know i mean the one thing that i it can't that can be said about every single piece of media and live action batman they've never really delved deep into the voiceover like not hearing like I think that Batman should never speak. I think we should only hear his internal dialogue the whole movie. And I think that would be so different than anything that you've ever done before. And, you know, like you look at a film like Goodfellas, I think there's like three or four different voiceovers in that film that carry all, all the characters. Something about Batman's internal dialogue 
I mean, like as a screenplay writer or as a, a filmmaker, I, I just can't imagine that this hasn't been a discussion somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of those uh, sort of graphic novel approaches since uh, Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns is, um, is like that. It is, is like a lot of, uh, you know, the narration boxes with this mm -hmm. monologue going on. So that'd be an interesting approach. Yeah. The reinterpretation of a character through many different, I mean, there's what, 80 plus years, so many different things. Uh, apparently this new Batman that's coming out is like uh, psychologically, uh, he he can't tell the difference between himself and like the, the villains that he's trying to chase down. I'll be there, you know, but uh, I am excited. I told you the last time in December when you were here uh, last Christmas uh, for Holly Jolly that uh, Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman, you know, and uh, it's out there. Yeah, I heard more about it. They're, are they going to do the age uh, regression technology on him, or no? He's he's seventy. He's still Batman. He's Batman in the seventies. And uh, from what I gather, uh, it's the Flash uses the cosmic treadmill, and something happens where he finds himself in, uh, I guess, Tim Burton's universe, and that Batman helps that Flash fix. I, I have no idea. I mean, like I've seen like one trailer so far. You don't see Batman. You see the back of. Michael Keaton's cow and you hear uh, Michael Keaton's voiceover and God, just hearing him talk like Batman again, it was so exciting. So I hope they get it right, man. I'll be there for that. But I mean, like this, the, the fact that like, you know, I mean, can you imagine if Adam West like came back on like one live action thing before, you know, like it's just, I can't believe it. It's happened. Well, that one, I, I probably for eighties nostalgia, I'd probably go, I'd probably go to that. I'd probably go to see Michael Keaton play Batman again, even though he wasn't, you know, not my favorite Batman, but it mm -hmm. just, you know, the 80s you know i still think about that idea you had uh that it would be interesting to um revive the 66 with michael Ma mike myers as a uh, batman right was that an idea that you pitched Actually, me it was mike myers uh he couldn't play batman uh, -huh. uh he'd probably be a villain okay um, but it would be that style yeah but his but he'd do the austin Powers style thing no my choice for batman is the guy who voiced batman in the uh lego batman long before he voiced batman in the lego batman um he was in uh, Arrested Development. Um, Will Arnett? Will Arnett. I'll tell you why. Because, well, he's, first of all, he's just so talented. But yeah. one day I, I was watching him. I think it was a, uh, a scripted show. Uh -huh. He just said something like, my fine feathered friend. And, and, I, and I, I thought like, oh my God, that's like Adam West delivery, but it's totally organic. And, and I just thought he should be the new Batman or the, the Adam West recreation of Batman. And the next thing you know, he's Lego Batman. I'm like, somebody else heard it too. I love, I listen to a weekly, uh, this is a podcast, not getting paid for this ad, but whatever. His Will Arnett's podcast is called Smart Smartless. It's with Jason Bateman and uh, Sean Hayes. Will Arnett is hysterical. And yes, I, he's tall. I could totally see him as Batman. I mean, I imagine with the Lego mo Batman movie franchise, at some point, maybe the Legos meet a live action Batman and it is Will Arnett. I would like to see that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, it'll never happen. But uh, but I think the 66 Batman has uh, garnered more respect in recent decades than it, than when it crashed and burned at the end of the 60s. You know, and, and uh, another thing that you got to remind it, you meant, alluded earlier to the fact that Batman has been interpreted over and over again since his debut in 1939. Um, that comedic Batman, that, that kind of goofy Batman, was was Batman for 20 years uh, for the 40s and 50s he was really kind of goofy you know like Bat Hound and Batmite and 
you know, just like all this really crazy stuff. And um, so uh, when uh, when people were, were like, this is an abomination on Batman, the Adam West show, it's like, well, no, not exactly. They're kind yeah. of doing the 50s Batman in the 60s with a little more, you know, hipness, you know. I still, th- I mean, like Cesar Romero's Joker is scary, you know, like it's, it's, he's scary in that role. And I told you, uh, you know, like I, I, I at oldies.com, I was working on a whole bunch of films that he did after 66 Batman series, uh, like uh, spaghetti Westerns. That's so weird seeing Cesar Romero out of the makeup. <laughs> it's just weird for me, man. You know? Yeah. And, and even like when you go like way, way back, like, uh, uh, you know, cause he was in movies since the thirties. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in, he's in this one movie that I highly recommend to Cesar Romero fans. It's called The Devil is a Woman. And um, it's like he and Lionel Atwell, who was like a, the great mad doctor of the old mm-hmm. movies, vying for the, uh, the uh, affection of Arlena Dietrich. And it's so beautifully filmed. And it's just like this weird love triangle. And Cesar Romero is like, you know, well, they always called him the Latin lover, but he's the Latin from New Jersey, but... Um, but uh, the Latin from Manhattan. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I just yeah. realized um, as we were uh, recording here, this is this is the beginning of your new trilogy series here on the podcast. Previously, you've been back for the Monster Mash. I believe that was uh, way back in 2015. Then Groovy, which was uh, 2017 last year. Your book, Holly Jolly 2020. Uh, so welcome to the new trilogy series. Um the Holly Jolly book, we just got all the Christmas stuff out yesterday in my neighborhood. You know, I like to uh, jump the gun, they call it, and put all the Christmas decorations up a week before Thanksgiving. The Holly Jolly book came down with all the Christmas stuff. stuff and we were, I was actually looking at it again this morning. Um, there'll be a link provided for the listeners down below here in this podcast where you could check out Mark's books. The Holly Jolly book is so well done. Such a great collection of like the nostalgia that makes up what I guess our cultured version of uh christmas is um i love that book it's great you know um and it's neat to see how christmas evolved you know like all the stages through you know the music uh the magazines are there's this one section was it the new yorker magazine and all the lovely covers the coca-cola ad placements Christmas has always just it's it's been stuck in our vernacular, I guess, for like, what, the last hundred years in American pop culture? Yeah, I mean, what, what was really amazing, uh, these, these pop culture books are always like a journey of discovery for me. Mm-hmm. The thing that really amazed me was that, like, going back to the 1600s, the 17th century, there was there already was Santa Claus. Um, there already was um, uh, Christmas hymns. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, Christmas cards and Christmas trees. That's the 1600s. That's, that's when, crazy. Yeah, and and so you know, really, it, it is a thing that's all about tradition. It's all about the past. The whole holiday, you know, you, like you say, you you drag down your Christmas stuff, some that you've had for decades, and then you might add a piece, and then that piece will get dragged out ten years from now, you know, or mm-hmm. one year from now, but certainly ten years from now. So it's an amazing thing that where like it's one. I always think of it as one day where the the past and the present coexist. Something about that. Yeah, it's true. So, I mean, I imagine you are working on something new, another uh, book, right, as well. You always have something popping. Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's way too early for me to uh, to, to talk about it or, or reveal it. But I, um, I remember uh, in 2017, I was on the Bobcast, or maybe it was 2015, yeah. And um, 
I, I, I let just let it drop that I'm working on a book called Groovy and you're the first yeah. person outside of my my inner circle of three people that I told because I'm so Irish and superstitious. <laughs> you know, well, I'll, just, I'll tell Bob. And then I actually heard from people who, who said, oh, you're working on a new book called Groovy, you know? So I'm going to swear you to secrecy and swear all Bobcat listeners to secrecy. But um, I got, I, 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 I'm just, even though it's not going to come out for another year and I'm not done it by any, by any stretch, I'm halfway through it, but it's going very well. So this is it. It's called, it's, well, actually, you don't, your, your listeners don't have it, but I'm showing Bob a mock-up of the cover, but it's called Britmania, uh, the British Invasion of, of the 60s in Pop Culture. So it's all about, um, it's all about uh, how uh, there was a thing called the British Invasion. Um, it started when the Beatles came to America uh, in February of 1969. They landed at JFK's, uh, JFK Airport in uh, uh, New York, and they went on the Ed Sullivan Show following uh, two days later on a Sunday night. Uh, ratings bonanza, everything went Beatle crazy. Next thing you know, they're selling uh, Beatle, Beatle dolls and um, uh, shampoo and honest to God, like hairspray and wigs and uh, board games. And, and uh, so they, they, you know, marketing people were looking at it as a flash in the pan, let's cash in. Mm. But they opened the floodgates and all these other bands came over one after another after another because everybody's looking to make money in America, right? So Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, the Animals, the Yardbirds, the Zombies, uh, all these bands, Herman's Hermits, they all came over. So for the rest of the 60s, we're, we're listening to, all, got, we, got, we were exposed to all this great music. The irony is they were only introducing, reintroducing American blues and, um, and uh, American black music, reintroducing it, introducing it to us because that's what they loved. Um, so anyway, um, and then so it's a it's a it's talking the, the it'll talk about all the kitsch, all the um, the merchandising. But then it, 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 as always, there's socio political implications. So it'll talk about uh, how it, it revived uh, the career of the blue, some of the blues masters and old rock masters. You know, because they deified Chuck Berry that he was their god and Little mm -hmm. Richard, uh, and also how to this day you know there. are are Beatles fans, you know, uh, who are, you know, in their teens, you know, just for some reason, this music uh, just has, has never gone away, you know, and, uh, you know, so anyway, that's, it's fine. It's going to be a, a goofy thing like the other, the other three. So it's my fourth book in this, in the pop culture trilogy. Well, I'm super stoked for that. I mean, I love the Beatles. Um, I also love the fact, I mean, you couldn't see it because it's an audio podcast, but uh, it's, it appears that you uh, did the cover for that. I'm excited to see more of your artwork. Question for you. You mentioned like uh, shampoo and, and like all these products coming out, like, you know, after the Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan. Was it was it um, was there a trademark between the Beatles and company like you could like, you know, how like a like a company be like, oh, I want to like make a Marvel Comics Hulk uh, clothing like, OK, you can have the trademark for a bit Did people just make Beatles stuff and the Beatles made no money on all that stuff. Well, that well, happened certainly knockoffs but um wow no what happened there and and and, and it's just the uh, iceberg i mean there were beetles ice cream bars and mm. beetle candy cigarettes i mean there's just everything what happened was um their manager brian epstein um and god bless him he he rubber stamped uh, he, he he there was so much marketing done on the beetles lunch boxes i mean and everything you could think of and they did have a, a corporation it was um 
is it pronounced sail t- sail tab it's beetle spelled backwards oh wow so, yeah so uh and i'm just not seeing the letter so i can't can't pronounce it at the moment um but um so so yeah they were they were doing all this stuff and that's another interesting thing is that um uh like i said everybody thought that they were a flash in the pan and they didn't do nearly as much uh, marketing of of this kind of toys on any of the other bands so the, the the company Remco that put out Beetle dolls, they also put out Dave Clark Five dolls, and mm-hmm. another company put out quasi Rolling Stones little figures, you know. But there were no, uh, you know, like I always, I joke that there were no, um, you know, uh, there was not a, a Rolling Stones cartoon Saturday morning series. There was on the Beatles. There were there weren't uh, animals. I, I love that Beatles cartoon, by the way. I remember having a copy of that on VHS. It was, it was like the voices were different, right? But it, it was cool, right? And it was like kind of like, like off, like offbeat, kind of, right? Like it was weird, yeah, kind I mean, of, yeah. People, a lot of people hate it. I cannot hate it because uh, they're they're charming and uh, yeah. likenesses are very good, even though it's that super streamlined. But like they yeah. bothered to get the likenesses right because that was another thing in those days. Um, they thought it was such a flash in the pan that that they were doing like they would do. Paul and Ringo, because they were easy, cute and giant nose, right? But they would they would kind of fluff it off on John and George. But those likenesses are great, and they use the real songs. But you're right, the voices are sometimes they're like posh, like I yeah. say, you know, yeah, it's like exactly, you know, yeah. Liverpool, they didn't speak like that. You know? Very trim and proper, uh, like perfect posture. <laughs> They'd walk into a room, you know. Uh, but yeah, but the, the Beatles. Really- I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, what were you saying? No, it's okay. No, I'm saying the, the cartoons are very cute. They're like they're they're fun to watch. Yeah, the Beatles are fun. I mean, still fun too, which is crazy. I think the Peter Jackson's releasing a new documentary on Crew Thanksgiving this week coming up, which talks a lot about. Uh, actually, I don't watch trailers anymore, so I have no idea what it's about. But I'm excited. And for me, you know, I always loved the Beatles. It wasn't, I guess, until 1991 when they released that Beatles anthology on television that I really fell in love with them. So. I, I just for me like I was so inspired by like that I am the walrus video I was just like what is this dude and then there were like this like magical mystery tour video of John like uh had a dream and he just kept serving spaghetti and I'm like I identify with this like I, I get these guys you know um a matter of fact I was just playing I am the walrus the other day on drums and god I love that song and it's just like that band you know and there's four characters you know for people who aren't musicians like it's very hard to explain this but it's like you know why you know some people you know it wasn't a flash in a pan it was a cultural like milestone and it's because of the chemistry between those four dudes and then like finding out as a musician too that they i mean like all these shows that they're playing you talk about ed sullivan you talk about you know like their brief tour here in america they could never hear themselves the amps were like 15 watts the pa system sucked Nobody could hear anything. And then they got so disenfranchised with it that they decided we're not playing no more. And I love that about the beat. The biggest band ever decided they didn't want to play concerts no more. Yeah. In 66, they couldn't hear themselves and they didn't have the, the sophisticated equipment that they have now. Exactly. I, I, I wonder what the Beatles would sound like, a, like an arena. Like I just saw a video of the Rolling Stones last night playing in Austin, Texas, you know, and they're, they're what, 74, 75 years old still doing their thing like god i can't imagine if the beatles i mean they had eventually would have gotten back together it's inevitable right hard to say um i mean certainly uh they disbanded in 1970 
and John Lennon was murdered in at the end of 1980. Um, you know, there were little reunions along the way. I guess they probably would have, but um, and I, I, you know, you mentioned the anthology, the the song uh, "Free as a Bird" that came from that, that was re officially released as a Beatles song with you know with Paul, George, Ringo yeah. behind it, and Yoko also giving it her uh, seal of approval. I I um I believe it. Like when I hear it, and I hear I hear them all together again. I, they, they, they brought it back for me. I, I, I actually believe it's the Beatles, you know. One of the interesting things you mentioned to me uh, in the last couple of weeks we've been talking is that uh, you had been uh, consulted on a documentary for Boris Karloff. And uh, as you know, we love the man behind the monster. What, what can you tell me about this? Like what, what were they asking you? Oh uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I, I was interviewed by um, the director, uh, Thomas Hamilton, mm -hmm. and uh, he's a, he's a Scotsman. Uh, and I think he's based in London um, and he's a brilliant filmmaker. And um, uh, I, uh, he, he did this film with a, with a guy from New Jersey I know named Ron McCluskey. But um, towards, the, towards the end, he, uh, he, I think he realized that um, he, he needed to do something about, or he wanted to, he wanted to pick my brain, you know, mm -hmm. about the uh, Carlos final four movies. Um, uh, Karloff, like, like he wanted to die with his grease paint on. He worked until the very end. He couldn't walk anymore, really. Um, he, he had this arthritis that just just ruined his body. And um, if you, he made movies in wheelchairs. His fans called them his wheelchair movies. But anyway, he uh, in eight, the April before he died, April of '68, um, he died on February second, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, he made four movies over a back-to-back -back over a five-week period. Wow. Yeah, I know, for a Mexican film company. And um, they didn't come out for years because the producer, um, Enrique Vergara, he died. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, what, and, and it's funny, when you see these movies, nobody remembers them. I think that's why Thomas, he saw a blog, a, a series of blogs I, I posted about it. What, what was the name of those final films? Let's see. It was um, uh, The Incredible Invasion, House of Evil, huh. uh, Isle of the Snake People, and um, The Fear Chamber. And believe me, me rattling those titles off with my brain in its current condition, uh, you know, that, that's nothing short of a miracle. I think but I put were, out one of those at oldies.com. I'm not sure which one, though, but I remember just being blown away because... It, he looked old, you know, like tired, you know, like it, it was it was a lot for him. He he just wanted to retire in his grease paint. What was his ailment that made him have back pain and stuff like that? Well, uh, he the, the the arthritis really really uh, crippled his body. Um, oh Jesus! Yeah. And he does walk in those um, in those movies, and every one of them he 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 walks, and in one of them actually uh, in uh, Snake People, he does a scene where he's berating a uh, an underling, and he's beating him with it with his with his cane and chasing him around and the guy's crawling around like a crab and so what what i know from being a care caregiver for for my uh, father is that with with anybody who has something debilitating like that there are good days and bad days so, mm -hmm. so if you see karloff in snake people you think oh he's getting around great if you see karloff in the incredible invasion you think like this 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 fucker's never going to make another movie you know yeah but, um uh, and an interesting thing about those movies, Bob, is that I always thought uh, it took me a long time to see them. Fight. It took a long time for them to come out. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, in the 80s, actually, they, was when I finally got to see all of them on VHS. But I thought it would be like a Plan 9 thing where like Carlos in every one of them for, for like five minutes. He's, he's in those oh, wow. What they worked them, you know, and the the American director who worked on Jack Hill uh, said uh, who who did you know uh, Pam Greer's coffee, you know he discovered Pam Greer um, or one of the people that that furthered her career. Uh, he said Karloff loved that he would he would sit in a wheelchair, he would breathe um, oxygen, and he looked very frail. And then when Jack Hill said, "Okay, Boris, we're we're going to shoot now," he would just get up and. He always knew his lines perfectly, you know. So, so um, yeah. To, uh, so Thomas Hamilton just wanted to just you know pick my brain about those. I um, he, he filmed it, but I, I don't. I still don't know if I'm in it. They they did a um, theatrical run in New York, but I didn't go in because I'm still so paranoid about the COVID. Yeah. You know, like, um, I I did not want to you know expose myself, get on a train in New York. So I haven't seen it. Uh, it's going to be streaming on uh, Shout Studios, and so I'm really psyched to see it. You know, because he's really talented. Let me ask you a question. Okay, like you know, um, for some they they play you know a- iconic character, and then they spend a lifetime trying to get away from it because they don't want to be typecast. What was Boris's feelings towards playing the monster? Well, funny thing is, Karloff um, Karloff was uh, you know in his 40s by the time. Frankenstein came along. Oh, was, wow. Not a young man. And he had been, uh, he'd done so much stock theater, uh, you know, uh, a lot in Canada. And um, and then he was an extra in movies. His first movie was in 1919. Frankenstein was 1931. So it's wow. quite a good there. Oh, so wow. He was very grateful to, to, be, to be discovered. And um, he, to, to his dying day, if, when people ask him that inevitable, Franken, uh, that inevitable question, um, do you resent being typecast in monster movies thanks to Frankenstein? He always said absolutely not because it gave him a brand. He, he, um, he, uh, he worked for the rest of his life. Into, he was uh, 80. Uh, he was 81 when he died. So he was 80 when he made those Mexican movies. Um, his birthday was on November 23rd, 1887. Uh, so he, uh, he was just grateful that to be working, he just wanted to work. So uh, he called, he always referred to the Frankenstein monster as his best friend and benefactor. But Bob, the one thing that I think is really cool about Carlos career is uh, while he was living, it was Frankenstein. Everybody's like, hey, Frankenstein, you know? Nowadays, nobody, not the, the mainstream, like the collective consciousness or collective memory, nobody really remembers the 1931 Frankenstein because there's as much, because there's been so many of them. Everybody remembers the Dr. Seuss 1966 Christmas special, The Grinch. He did the voice of The Grinch and he narrated it. So any child, any five-year-old, mm-hmm. you can say, have you seen The Grinch? And they're like, yeah, you know, they'll, I mean, I don't know what they'll say, but they'll say they love it, they know it, they watch it every year and they'll know that voice. That was, that The Grinch eclipsed Frankenstein monster. That must've been awesome for him, right? Like having like a rebirth of sorts. I would love to be to have been a fly on the wall for the recording process of when Boris recorded his his voiceover for that you know film because his delivery of it it sounds like he's got like uh like wood chips in his mouth it's like so rustic you know when he's talking into you know when he's describing the the roast beast and like the way that it comes off you know like it's so enunciated so so he didn't become 
Frankenstein to his 40s. Is it true? Isn't it true that Bela Lugosi didn't become Dracula until he was like 50, right? Well, no, with, with, with Lugosi, he played, he played Dracula on Broadway. That's right. In 29, before the, uh, before mm-hmm. the 1931 film. So he, um, uh, you know, and, and he was somebody who kind of resented um, that he always had to be Dracula, like no, no matter what movie he was in. He was somebody that, you know, uh, his great dream was to, was to play uh, Cyrano, you know, like he, mm. he just, um, he, he wanted to do more comedy. He did a lot of comedy. He had amazing timing, but it was always in conjunction with a horror theme, you know. I mean, we were talking about Adam Selmy, Frankenstein, the, the scene where uh, Lou Costello, the candle is moving on the coffin lid and then Dracula gets out. Like th- that, that is a ballet between Lou Costello and Bela Lugosi. But, but uh, yeah, so Bela is somebody who, uh, like even later in his career when, it's, when the movie thing washed up, he could always get hired in summer stock in a summer stock touring production of Dracula. Now he's really old, you know, and, and, and he looks it, you know, but, uh, and then another irony that it might've been a bitter pill to swallow. If it wasn't Dracula, it was um, Arsenic and Old Lace playing a, ca- a character that was written, Jonathan Brewster, that was written for Boris Karloff. And wow. Boris Karloff did on Broadway in the forties. So, uh, so it, you know, uh, that was probably a bitter pill and, you know, but, um, uh, us monster fans, we don't pick sides. We love them both. When you uh, mentioned the candle in the coffin and Abacostello meets Frankenstein, in the back of my mind, I just hear somebody screaming McDougal. I love that. It's something I used to say that word over and over as a kid, like McDougal. Like that's what that's what you call your little one. <laughs> McDougal. <laughs> that's a great name. You know, I, he actually has seen Abacostello meets Frankenstein. He loved it. I mean, like the transformation scene for the uh, the wolfman i mean like it's really well done and like you know he runs about that room and it's convincing and the whole comedic like you know where he's like prancing it's, it's so well done um you know speaking of all these uh you know uh iconic characters throughout pop culture you also had some some uh direct uh, communication recently with uh, a real life hero um from you know this time era you were on a podcast discussing all elements about Muhammad Ali. Is that correct? Oh yeah. Um, I, I don't know when it's going to air, but um, what happened was um, uh, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but I, I uh, interviewed Muhammad Ali in 1971 when I was in the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Moved um, to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is the town I grew up in, mm-hmm. a suburb of South Jersey, and um, there were Ali sightings. People would see him, you know. Uh, like working with the grounds crew, he, you know, he had a big, beautiful house. Um, and uh, so uh, myself and my little brother, Brian, and our lifelong friend, Tom, one Sunday afternoon, we took a bike ride over there mm-hmm. and uh, way, you know, it was a long bike ride. And um, uh, I knocked on the door. I was the editor of the school newspaper uh, at Holy Rosary School, Catholic school, grade school, I was in seventh grade. And the butler answered and he let us in and Muhammad Ali, eventually we had to go back, but he, uh, we scheduled an interview and I interviewed him and uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, bigger than life, you know. And he What's was that so- like for a seventh, seventh grader to see Muhammad Ali walk into the room and you got it? I'll tell you. Uh, well, first of all, when the butler, when we first knocked on the door, brought us into 
the foyer and then he brought us into the living room and Muhammad Ali was sitting in the lounger with uh, a couple of dudes in in uh, like kind of suits. Yeah. They were sitting on the floor, it was very informal, they were having a business meeting and the butler said, Mr. Ali, these gentlemen would like to interview you for their school newspaper. And uh, uh, when, when he, but when he saw us, he said, hold up fellas, you know, to, to this. And he said, uh, uh, can you come back tomorrow? It was just bigger yeah. than life. He said, just so charismatic. And uh, we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the butler said, I believe these gentlemen have school tomorrow, Mr. Ali. So he said, you come back at seven, I'll give you the best interview you ever had. And um, yeah, it was, uh, and then when we saw him upright, at set, when we came back at seven, they, uh, a friend of his had stuck us in a conference room, said, Mr. Ali, Ali, I'll be right with you. And before long, there he was. I mean, he was a giant. I mean, literally and figuratively, he was a giant. And um, he was wonderful to us. Really, really uh, sweet. He, he, you know, answered all my questions. And uh, uh, I, I can only say that it, it gave me my career because uh, I spent, I, I, I equated acceptance with landing a cool interview at, at um, when I was, you know, in seventh grade. And so I actually, you know, chased that for the rest of my life. And so in my dotage now, uh, you know, I, I look, I look back and I just think like, what a great gift he gave us that day. I never, I never knew that. I did you interviewed him. I mean, maybe you told me in hindsight, but I mean, it's something about him. When you think about Muhammad Ali, it's like he is, he's yes, larger than life, but it's, he also had like this uh, illustrious, athletic career but he also had this influence in pop culture that i guess every now and then an athlete can you know it, it happens that way like you're so you you strive for excellence and you're so good that the you know the normal person who doesn't necessarily watch boxing then becomes acquainted with that person as you know a celebrity or as a figure um his story was always just so fascinating to me so sad that he got sick and like I was just at the Plymouth Meeting Mall the other day and I walked by this frame shop and I saw that iconic cover. I'm not sure who the artist did, but it's Muhammad Ali versus Superman. Um, oh, it's your buddy, Neil Adams. Yeah, it's Neil that did that, right? So when did that come out? Like, what did that come out as one of those large format books in the 70s? Or like, what, what's, do you know the origin of that? Yeah, I believe it, I believe it did come out in the large format. I don't own a copy. And I believe that the cover is, um, it, it goes all the way to the back cover. And um, what Neil Adams did, you know, I'm, I, I'm 95% sure it was Neil Adams. <clears throat> so I did want to leave that little bit of a doubt because in my- I'm pretty sure it is. State, I have to Google stuff to make sure. But- um, it, it I, th so I think you can see the hair coming out of Superman's uh, <laughs> costume out <laughs> of his chest. But, um, but he did all celebrities in the crowd, you know, like so yeah. there's recognizable, a la 1976. But, um, but uh, and yeah, you know, the, the, the thing you mentioned about pop culture, to me, the, the, what was most interesting about Ali and pop culture was he would go on talk shows, and uh, you know, here's a here's a guy who uh, he 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 won the Olympic gold medal in Rome in 1960, came back to came back a returning hero to Louisville, Kentucky, where he was born, and with a freaking gold medal, Olympic gold medal that he got for the United States, and he still wasn't allowed to eat in Louisville, wherever he wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. 1960. So, um, uh, so he was a he was was a civil rights advocate, mm -hmm. and he would go on he would go on like uh, you can see it all on on YouTube. He'd go on a show like Firing Line with William William F Buckley Jr. Yeah, who uh, uh, Buckley was definitely a uh, like a far right conservative, 
but it's not like it is today where there's nothing but hatred. Uh, he was very charming, very funny, and he did engage people. Muhammad Ali was also very charming and very funny. So you, when you watch that, you see that Buckley's on the wrong side of history. Buckley's stance is like, uh, they passed the Civil Rights Act in, in 1964, so everything's fixed. What are you complaining about? And Muhammad Ali is, is, is always holding his ground. And it, but he would do this on the Mike Douglas show too. He would, he would always bring these things up, these um, topics that people didn't want, didn't want to think about. And you know, he would be accused of being an agitator, hmm. but um, he, he always brought them up. He always did it with, with grace and charm and humor so that you never felt like he was, ha he was hating, uh, you know, he was hating white people. You never ever felt that ever. Um, uh, you, you just felt, and looking back and when you just realize how bad, how bad things continued to be into the sixties. And of course, as we know now, they're, they're still just freaking terrible. Um, you know, you, you just realize how ahead of his time he was and how he gave a, vo a voice to the voiceless. He used his fame as a forum and he never uh, backed down. Yeah, his, his career, everything about him, it's just, you know, and being brave, you know, and like standing up for equal rights and stuff like that. I don't know why I just thought this, but I know I know there's like, you know, uh, the, the thinking, of, I guess, Superman and Muhammad Ali. Did Muhammad Ali ever meet Elvis Presley? <laughs> uh, gosh, I'm not sure. But, you know, he met he met the Beatles once. And that's kind of funny because. Wow. All right. If I, I, I might have this a little bit wrong. OK, the Beatles, it was in 64. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles wanted to wanted to meet somebody else. It might have been Joe Lewis. It might have been right before the Ollie Joe Lewis fight. But see, here's where my my knowledge of uh, of sports. I, I I remember in '71 when I interviewed him. The previous March, he had just fought Joe Frazier for the first time. Wow! And I knew that because the whole world, whole world, that was it was Ollie Frazier. But I don't I don't know his career that well because i'm not a sports guy i'm more of a pop, pop culture guy mm -hmm. but anyway the beatles they wanted to uh they wanted the beatles to pose with the more famous fighter at the time and i think it was joe lewis because wasn't it the joe lewis fight that that established ali after the olympics uh but anyway um somebody will crucify me if i'm wrong it's all right. uh, deservedly but anyway so they they got ali instead and so Please, uh, Bobcast listeners, Google those photos because it's really cute. There's like a photo where I think Ali's in his boxer, his uh, boxing shorts, and his uh, he's got his glove, his boxing gloves on. And then there's a scene where he's like punching. Uh, he poses punching one of the Beatles, but all their four heads are together. Like they do uh -huh. poses. And apparently, uh, when the after the Beatles left, because he didn't know who they were, because you know he wasn't tapped into that world, and it was a brand new phenomenon. Yeah. And they, he said, like, who who were those sissy boys? He didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> long hair, so everybody like with and it wasn't really long, Bob. You know, your hair and my hair is much longer than the Beatles hair in 1964. What I have left of my hair. You know, it's crazy that haircut. I mean, uh, it, it's it's back now in some form of uh, sports culture. There's this new fighter from Liverpool tying it all together here with the Beatles. His name's Patty the Batty. Have you ever heard of Patty the Batty? <laughs> Uh, for uh, your your listeners uh, and like uh, for people out there who, who want to see somebody who's from Liverpool who has the Beatles shaggy kind of hair, this kid is hysterical. He's a UFC fighter and he is larger than life. He has the type of personality of Muhammad Ali and he's from Liverpool and he cracks me up. It is interesting, um, you know, like 
the the more and more you talk we talk about pop culture and like you know like all these things that like influence our point of reference now right i mean the internet is at the forefront of everything now social media and stuff like that but all these other things you had to acquire you know you had to go out and get them and i think that i, I talked to, i had a, some people over here last night we were talking about that and it's just like we're so fortunate that we were like scavengers of our entertainment back in the day you know we had to go seek out things whereas now like you just you know, you turn on your phone, there's all this shit that like, you know, the algorithm will tell you that you should like, you know, and necessarily you don't. But I'm so thankful that I had like, you know, it, it, like I was born in 80, but like, I still f- feel like my ancestors were the, the, the 60s and 70s, you know, and like, I remember as a kid feeling like, man, I wish I grew up with like, you know, like I found out about the Sex Pistols in like 76 and like being like, uh, like I listened to them in 95 and thinking that was ages ago, but it really was all connectively you know together in this one period of time in our you know collective consciousness is where like art was just popping off social equality was starting to happen finally after centuries and centuries of people treating each other like shit you know and like there's so much in there late 60s 70s you know and like i still think about it daily you know it doesn't it's like part of like who i am you know, Bob, you're, you're, I, I think I'll surprise you by remembering this, but uh, you, you, yeah, you were born in the 80s and yet you were in a band called Nixon Killed Hendrix. Oh, yeah. Well, the reference, uh, it has ties into uh, grunge. It has ties into the 60s. It has ties towards, you know, all sorts of different things. I mean, like Hendrix, too. I Hendrix, there's nobody that sounds like Hendrix, man, at all. Like still. Like, uh, it's weird, too, because you listen to Hendrix on CD and stuff like that. But if you watch him play with his band, uh, one thing that um, I liked about bands back in the day and Zeppelin was uh, also a part of this type of thing. Uh, most of the time now, like if you see the Foo Fighters, if you see like a big rock and roll band, the drummer's way up on that riser. He's way up there. He's so high from the band. There's microphones. They can hear him. But bands like Led Zeppelin, they would always have John Bonham on the floor. So the kick drum was right behind all the band members, you know, that makes a difference when you're playing live music, when you can't hear that kick drum correctly, you know, like Hendrix too, like, you know, the, the Jimi Hendrix experience, that band is kicking it on all six cylinders. And like, you know, bands today, I don't really feel that so much. Like, uh, I, I don't see it. Like, I don't see that type of um, chemistry, you know? Well, nowadays, I mean, we're lucky if, if there if there is a band, we're lucky because yeah. so much stuff it, like it, it's like the it's like back. Uh, uh, one of the things the Beatles started really, and and it it survived for years, is that taking control away from the record companies and putting it into the artists. You know, mm-hmm. like the Beatles wrote their own music, uh, wrote their own songs, but also they played the music. You know, the old model was uh, you know the the artists would be controlled by management and the record company to a much greater degree. So they kind of changed that dynamic. And so that continued for years, but it's back, it's back. Um, I think with the rise of, I blame everything on American Idol. I think with the rise of American Idol mm. and all the people, all those kids who, you know, they didn't play clubs, they just, you know, auditioned and, you know. In like, front of a mirror. They didn't yeah. go out and do the hardcore work. They just sang yeah. in front of a mirror and then thought that, oh, this is how it should be. You know, for, it's so nice to be in the presence of like, it's like we are in the same age group now. You know what I mean? Like uh, I've, I've done lots of podcasts this year and a couple of the podcasts I was interviewing uh, younger musicians, right? 
And one of the like the things that like you know the Beatles didn't have to do, Jimmy didn't have to do. I mean, even Muhammad Ali didn't have to do is they had a voice and they had a message that they were getting out, but they didn't have to have a social media presence, man. God, do I get like I I love music. I I had a um, bunch of musicians over last night. We had this great jam session, you know, and we just made music. You know, it was great. There was no discussion like let's make a band out of it or whatever, because it's like now you have to make a band and you have to have a social media presence. You have to have a bunch of followers. You have to post each day. You didn't hear from the Beatles sometimes for, you know, a year or two. And then all of a sudden they pop back up in a magazine or something. and They'd be back into the forefront. To me, it sucks that the artist has this extra layer of responsibility that doesn't necessarily pertain to the stuff that I enjoyed as a kid, you know, the music, the message, the feeling now, like it's like this outside pressure to the band. If, if they're a young band with like not a lot of followers or they don't have a social media presence, they got to keep posting. And it's just like, there's no mystery left, you know, like Kurt, I can't imagine what it would be like for me to like have Kurt Cobain on Instagram every day. I mean, he's my favorite musician in the 90s. He was an artist. Would he use social media? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I don't like that that's something that bands have to contend with now. Yeah, and, it, and it, 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 you know, I'm coming off of a 40-year a career in newspapers, and uh, that's where newspapers went. They just, they just, uh, uh, clickbait. Yep. You know, clickbait. Like, like they, they would, you know, be, before, uh, I was laid off for the second and final time uh, just a couple of years ago. They were actually encouraging us to write um, leads, meaning the first sentence or paragraph of your story that had um, search engine friendly words in them because they just cared so much about hits. And uh, and, and I remember thinking like totally the, the uh, tail wagging the dog because you're supposed to, as a writer, you're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be organic, it's supposed to be pure. like here's my lead. This is what I really believe will get you into the rest of the story. And then yeah. it's to say like, Oh, here's what I believe were, are the words that are, you're likely to search. It's not, it's not organic. It's not timeless. It's, you know, so yeah, it, there's too much, em- there was too much emphasis on that. You know, I do believe that eventually, I mean, there will be a need for bands to just be heard again. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think, um, you know, like all these things we talked about and how we're saying like, you know, like things that we love, we went out and tried to, you know, hunt it down, scavenge it, you know, like find the things that made a difference in our lives. Whereas now, like you're, you're kind of like, you know, uh, told through the algorithm or the clickbait what you should and shouldn't like. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. But I mean, I am thankful and I have lots of gratitude for all the things that we talked about today in this podcast. I mean, there's so many things that we touched upon today that, uh, you know, somehow or another, like formulate it like, you know, our minds, you know what I mean? Like all these great moments of pop culture that meant something. And sometimes they're the creation of somebody's mind, you know, like Bob Kane and and uh, and Bill Finger, like, you know, they they come up with um this character, you know, and like how many years has it been? And he's still resonating in our minds. I don't think social media could create something that timeless. I don't say it. I think that social media, when you look at something, you, you flick it and it's gone the next day. Um, I don't see many icons being created today, really, that I, I, I see lasting for generations. Well, amen. Uh, although I... Um... I think Megan Thee Stallion uh, will be uh, (laughs) 
I think he's an icon, but I agree. I agree. I, you know, I mean, there is artists out there that are changing the, 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 my son's going to his first concert next September. We, there's this band we like called 21 pilots. Um, he loves the band and like, he's going to be six then. And I just can't imagine what that's going to be like for him to see, you know, the explosions, the fire, you know, the stage, but yeah, I'm excited to uh, expose that to him. He, he actually this, this week, it's weird. Like I'm the type of dad where like uh, my, my philosophy is I don't want to drag his feet to the fire, but I want to show him that the fire's warm and you should sit around the circle because you can learn a couple of things. Right. And I've always done that. I've never forced him into music, but just this week, like he just, he's picked up the piano and like one morning he's like, daddy, his new thing is he says, daddy, look all the time. So I just yeah. say, daddy, look all the time. It's like, I, I think I should start a podcast with dads. It's called daddy. Look. But he comes into the room and he's like, Daddy, check this out. And he's got a piano and he figured out the Michael Myers Halloween theme by himself. And he was so proud of himself. He was just like, I did it, Dad. And then like some people came over last night. He went to show him. I'm like, oh, man, this is just the best, you know. Oh, that's sweet. That is really sweet. And that's a very distinctive piece, you know. So Yeah. And like, you know, he's very interested. Like, he, like I said, I was like, you know, he's scared of, of Michael Myers, but he's also, you know, he's interested in Halloween just passed. And he had like a bunch of questions. He's like, well, who made the movie? I'm like, the guy who made the movie also wrote the song. And like, when I said that to him, like he stopped and looked at me. He's like, what? <laughs> you know? And yeah, John Carpenter was a musician who uh, actually asked the producers of that film, do you mind if I put my music in there? And we never would have had that Halloween theme song if it wasn't for, you know, this chance occurrence too. I mean, like the, the Halloween script. I mean, I haven't obviously told him all this details. The Halloween script wasn't even Halloween. It was called the the Babysitter Murders, I believe. And they just wanted to make a movie about babysitters that are being murdered. But this one film came out and I think they shot it in like two and a half weeks. Yeah. And I don't even think it would have been as popular without that music. I mean, that music is iconic, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, can, I can hear it right now, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I just wanted to mention one thing real quick uh, mm -hmm. was uh, that's pr pretty neat that, that you that you blew your son's mind yeah. by telling him that John Carpenter wrote uh, the Halloween theme. I just want to tell you really quick. Uh, There's a movie uh, in the '70s called The Cowboy, starring John Wayne, and uh, Bruce Dern is the bad guy, and he kills John Wayne, horrible, bloody death. And uh, I, we watched our family watched it, and then uh, not long after, like a couple days later, Bruce Dern, the actor who was the bad guy who killed John Wayne, was on the Tonight Show. And my brother was watching it and he was little. I think he was like five. And he's like, they say, Johnny Carson says, okay, and now welcome Bruce Dern. And out walks the guy who killed John Wayne in the Cowboys. And my brother's like, what the? You know, he's like, how yeah. can everybody be, be clapping for him? He's the guy who killed John Wayne. Like he never, he, he still couldn't separate the actor from the part. And then my brother says that Bruce Dern sat down and started talking and started making jokes and stuff. And then my brother was like, oh, he's not such a bad guy. And that was my, when my brother realized there's a difference between the, the guy who killed John Wayne on the screen and the guy in real life who can joke with Johnny Carson. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, as a young man, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, like I try to explain to him all the time. It's like, like, I, like he sees me film him with my iPhone, right? And I explain to him, this is the same, like when you watch Halloween, you know, somebody has a camera and they're filming that and it just blows his mind. He's like, it's not real. Like, I'm like, no, like we make these stories up in our mind and then we film them. So that way people can feel something later. And he's just like, daddy, 
look <laughs> you know like all right yeah I'm we're into it Bob, you got to make a movie we, 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 we actually are um, i'm planning on it because he you know like this is like, this whole thing with like, youtube and like uh these youtube videos parents make and they go viral i'm like if you want to make something tyler let's make something and it could be scary and he's like you mean we can make people get scared i'm like yeah exactly like and i was like telling him about suspense and like you know like how um the camera a lot of times is just like what creates suspense and he, he's only five but he's like i think he's getting it and, and, and like i'm like if you shoot from real far away and you can't really see it like it's scary and he's like why i'm like because you can't see it he's like oh daddy i get it you know but yeah, the funny um, thing is, i won't bore you but um uh, in the uh on vhs i think in the 80s or early 90s we made a my brother and i made a monster movie with his mm -hmm. uh, daughter and his nephew i'm sorry his son my mm -hmm. nephew and, and um we, you know we were frankenstein and the mummy or something and uh ian my nephew is now a filmmaker uh, hell of a career and um he always says that what inspired him was that experience of making a movie because he said that because he said he thought it was so cool that adults were playing like you know only yeah. kids played but while making a movie he saw his father and his uncle pretend to be monsters and fight each other and roll down a hill together which was really rough on two fat men um uh it, it was better on paper than in real life but it um and he said they're playing so that's why he always wanted to be a filmmaker because because adults play you know so i you know I, th that's something that I, I talked about not too long ago here on the show it's like you know there's a certain point in an adult's life where like they just it, it, using your imagination isn't something that uh i guess society wants you to do but like i don't know i mean like a couple of years ago when like you know my son start getting into action figures and stuff again, like picking up an action figure and actually role playing with it and getting into it. I found to, I found that I felt better about myself afterwards. So, you know, like uh, I, I felt good for me to role play through uh, an action figure, you know, and I hadn't done that in like so many years. And like, I, I got into it and we made these scenes up and stuff. And like, you know, he had, uh, I still have my Castle Grayskull from He-Man with all my Batman stuff. And like, we put it all together. Adults sometimes like, you know, they need that outlet. I think that maybe, you know, uh, it's something that they should look into. I, I was talking to somebody last night. I was like, oh, I'm just not creative. And I'm like, you are, you just haven't been um, celebrated for it yet. You know what I mean? Like, I guess a lot of people, they struggle. Like they say, oh, I can't draw. I wish I could draw. It's like, no, you probably can draw, but maybe somebody told you something along the way that disenfranchised you not to do it, you know? And like, I think a lot of time with creativity, somebody can say something to hurt your feelings and it just turns you off from that. You don't want to do it no more. Like, I don't want to go to the painting with a twist because somebody said I paint like shit. It's like, it's an expression of yourself. And I think that humans need to express themselves so that way they can feel better about themselves. And like, I think that there's this like notion that, oh, you have to be creative or you have to be artistic. It's like, no, you can express yourself daily, you know, just by doing something. Amen. I mean, I, I think that the medium of comics, like I think everybody should draw comics, everybody. Mm -hmm. And and if people say I can't draw, I'm like, well, draw stick figures and draw yep. and write words and have a point and do a little something to the stick figure just to show who's who. Uh, and it doesn't matter that you don't have talent, you're expressing yourself. And those com those comics is, is like a, a form of a journal. It's a way of getting stuff out. And you look if you look back on those stick figures 10 years later, you're like, oh, that's where my head was at. Like it's 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 a great exercise. Yeah. You know, 
writing, drawing, everybody should draw whether or not they have any, any quote unquote talent. Yeah, it feels good. It feels good for your brain to use that other access point, you know, like uh, it's the same, for, same for me. Like if I guess like if I do like a hard math equation, I don't like math at all, but I try, I'll try to utilize those parts of the brain, but um, yeah, it's fascinating. And I, 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 it's nice to talk to somebody else who's creative too. Cause it's like, yeah, I feel that need daily to like, you know, write something or to draw something or to play a piece of music, you know, it just makes me feel better about myself. And especially with writing though, like writing in general, though, is like to create like a world that doesn't exist and then to kind of like live in it. Um, since I, uh, I guess I didn't write anything for, for about a year during the pandemic. And in July of the summer, I started reading comics again and going to the comic book store. And I met this, uh, this guy there who's a comic book writer and him and I teamed up and we wrote a pilot together that uh, I've been working on for the last three months. And it's like this fantasy world that I'm living in. I think about it. Like I think about like the, you know, the characters that exist in there and it's just awesome. You know, it feels good to have something, you know? Very cool. Very cool. But I'm very excited for your new uh, new work. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Brit Mania will have to come back uh, proper for, uh, you know, the, the second appearance in your second trilogy uh, for that release. Yeah. So don't forget, don't tell anybody. And Bobcamp listeners, it's just between you and me. Okay, right. cool. <laughs> I won't say anything. Uh, for all the, all the books that we talked about, um, including Holly Jolly, there's a link provided below here in the, the podcast where you can check out all Mark Boger's stuff. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Robert. My name is Bob. My best to you and your family always. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving. This this is coming out uh, on Thanksgiving week. Um, may everybody uh, have a pleasant uh, holiday. Uh, eat lots of bird. Uh, ingest lots of tryptophan. Take a nap. Watch football. Do whatever you do to celebrate. Uh, once again, pleasure. As my guest today was Mark Boger. My name is Bob, and this has been another episode of the Bob the Bobcast. Bobcast. <laughs>